In a perfect world, every murder that ever occurred would be solved and neatly done so. Criminals would be in jail, and the good, ordinary people of the world would be enjoying their everyday lives with no fear or worries for their safety. Unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. Although authorities have been reviving and solving cold cases, there are still many left without answers, and many families left in limbo without closure. In today's video, we will be discussing three double homicide cases that are still unsolved. Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann. February the 12th, 1971, was a cold, rainy evening. Jesse McBain, a 19-year-old student at the North Carolina State University, was described as being a tall, good-looking man. He had met his sweetheart, Patricia Mann, back in high school, and they'd been together for three years and had intentions of marriage. Patricia was a 20-year-old nursing student, working and studying at Watts Hospital in Durham. On the evening in question, nothing seemed amiss. Jesse picked up Patricia, and the couple headed to the Valentine's dance, which was taking place at Watts Hospital. After the event, the pair walked back to Patricia's dormitory there at the hospital. Here, she signed out for the rest of the evening, noting that she'd be back by the 1am curfew that was in place. But Patricia never came back that night, and Jesse never returned home. It wasn't long before concerned friends and family notified police, who were reluctant to investigate the case of two teenagers who hadn't even been gone for 24 hours. A friend of Patricia's found Jesse's car locked, parked up at a lover's lane at what is now the Hillendale Golf Course on Medford Road. It was undisturbed and had two coats lying across the back seats. Those who knew the couple were alarmed, as both were happy and looking forward to their future together, and were not the type to run away. On February the 25th, almost two weeks after the pair vanished, a surveyor working in the woods thought he'd found a mannequin's leg on a one-track dirt road in Orange County. Beneath the pile of leaves, however, the worker found something much more disturbing, the deceased bodies of a young man and a young woman. Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann were identified as the victims. They were both still fully dressed, their hands tied behind their backs to a tree with thick ropes. Though the ropes were stretched tight and knotted around their necks, their upper bodies had slumped over so that they lay side by side. The medical examiner who performed autopsies on the bodies identified several distinct strangle marks on the necks of both victims, which made it appear as if the pair had each had a rope tightened around their necks, loosened, and then tightened again, as a means of torture. The couple had suffered almost identical injuries, except Patricia had a half-inch tear to her liver, 
meaning she had received a violent blow to her stomach before she died. The sheriff's offices of both Orange County and Durham County worked together with the Durham Police Department and the State Bureau of Investigation to try and find the perpetrator of these brutal, sadistic crimes. But the case became confused and its waters muddied due to the lack of communication between the four agencies who were working on it. Despite this, two suspects were identified in the 1970s. They continue to be suspects still, although only one is alive today. Little is known on what makes these two people persons of interest, and the case of Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann is kept heavily under wraps by authorities. Investigator Tim Horn declined to say how or why the man became a suspect when later questioned. Reportedly, the suspect had declined to take a polygraph test in 1971, and again in a recent investigation when he was asked once more. He also declined to give a DNA sample, although authorities later collected one from a public place. Recent reports and online sleuths have found that the man in question is a former doctor of Watts Hospital, where Patricia worked and studied. Tim Horn has confirmed that as far as authorities are aware, this man was not a love interest in Patricia's life. The killer is believed to be somebody who is familiar with the area, as he had to have felt comfortable no one would discover him and his victims as they screamed and pleaded with him whilst enduring the torture he inflicted upon them. At one point, after the 1970s, the case was closed. But in 2011, after Tim Horn found a box of discarded evidence and was on duty the day Patricia's cousin phoned in to ask about progress in the case, he worked with her to petition to have the case reopened, and the sheriff agreed. In recent updates to the case, it has been confirmed that a DNA test performed on the rope sadly failed to gather any useful evidence. The media coverage that resulted from forensics being performed on evidence that was almost five decades old prompted a retired detective who alerted investigators to a similar case that occurred in 1972. A couple on a lover's lane was approached by a man who forced them both into his car trunk by gunpoint. They were driven to Orange County, but the pair managed to escape. Although investigators set up interviews to try and find a link between the two cases, nothing has publicly come of this line of investigation. Although authorities continue to work hard on the case of Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann, their cases continue to go unsolved. As always, we ask if you have any information to please relate it to the relevant sources. In this case, contact North Carolina Sheriff's Association on 919-644-3050. Brian and Angela Charles. It is March 22nd, 2009, around 7 a.m., and police are called to a violent scene on a quiet street in Joliet, Illinois. 31-year-old IT manager, Brian Charles, is found slumped from the living room couch in the home he shares with his wife and the couple's two-year-old child. Brian has been shot in the head and the chest. Angela Charles, 23, a portrait photographer at Orland Park's JCPenney, is found dead from a shot to the head 
in the hallway outside of their child's bedroom. Their two-year-old, Sean, sleeps in his wooden crib. The call to emergency services was made by Brian's ex-wife, Kathleen, a 31-year-old who was the mother of Brian's other two children. Kathleen had gone to Charles's house to collect video games for her children, a notion that was contradicted by her children according to an investigator's affidavit. Family and friends also dispute this reasoning, claiming that Kathleen didn't even let her children play video games. Many online sleuths have wondered why on earth one would head to their ex-husband's house at 7am simply to collect some games. Kathleen quickly became the prime suspect in the cold-blooded murder of her ex-husband and his new wife, as details of their ugly divorce and bitter custody battle came to light. Brian and Kathleen had been married for seven years, in which Brian took his wife's last name. He filed for divorce in 2003 and was granted temporary custody of the children. Three years later, Brian married Angela and Sean was born the following year. Brian was known for his kind and generous nature, his talent as an artist and his belly laugh, and he often played Pokemon cards with his kids. Angela was a hard-working woman with a passion for photography, who intended to go back to college and transfer to university as soon as she could. She was also a Girl Scout leader. Ten days before her murder, she had gotten the names of her and Brian's child and her stepchildren, Cora and Liam, tattooed onto her body. In 2008, Brian was awarded custody of his other children, as Michigan Family Service workers opened an investigation into the living conditions of the mobile home in which Kathleen lived. According to Brian, the children had no running water, shared bug-infested cereal with the family dog, and used buckets as toilets. He went on to add that rags were used instead of toilet paper, and these said rags would then continue to lie on the floor afterwards, and that his children hadn't been bathed in weeks. He even added that one was made to beg at garage sales. On the other hand, Kathleen alleged that Brian had been abusing her and the children. Brian received no criminal convictions from this, but Kathleen managed to secure a pair of protective orders. One lasted around six weeks, while another was dismissed after only three weeks. After Brian's allegations arose and the investigators tried to inspect her home, Kathleen fled the states with her children. A judge proceeded to order that the children not be taken outside of the county without the court's permission, and set a trial date for March 30th, 2009. When investigators looked through Angela's Facebook account, they noted her many distressed and upset posts in regards to the custody battle she and Brian were ensnared in with his ex-wife. Two days after the murders, investigators issued a search warrant at Kathleen's home. They searched her 1990 Chevrolet station wagon and seized eight computers along with other materials. She was interviewed for 12 hours following the slayings and spent most of the investigation declining to cooperate. She hired an attorney and moved to California with Liam and Cora, whom she was given custody of 10 days after the murders. Kathleen's attorney claimed she had nothing to do with the crime, but refused to comment 
any further. Relatives and friends claimed that Angela and Brian had voiced their concerns for their safety in the weeks leading up to the murders. It was also found that the back of the Charles family home was broken into when the family were attending the couple's funeral on March 7th. A back window was smashed, but this was later established as being neighborhood kids who knew the house was empty, who had broken in to steal the game's console and DVDs. Kathleen did not attend the funeral after being asked by family and friends. Angela's parents, Jackie and Joseph Roth, now care for Sean, who frequently asks about his parents. In later reports, it appears that Kathleen lost custody of her children and Cora and Liam went on to be raised by Brian's parents. The only witnesses in the couple's case is that of the neighbors who claim to have heard loud noises around 2 to 2.30 a.m. Another neighbor saw two men standing outside the front of the home at about one in the morning. These men have never been traced. While many believe Kathleen played a hand in the murder of her ex-husband and his new wife, she has yet to face any charges. It seems there isn't enough evidence to pursue this line of inquiry or bring charges. As a result, the case of Brian and Angela Charles continues to grow cold. If you have any information, please contact the Will County Sheriff's Office at 815-727-8575. Harvey and Jeanette Crew. David Harvey Crew, 28, and Jeanette Lenore Crew, 30, were a farming couple who resided in Pukekawa, New Zealand and were murdered in 1970. The pair had married just four years earlier on June 18th, 1966 in Auckland, and at the time of their deaths, had an 18-month-old daughter. In the months leading up to the murder, the pair was subject to several arson attacks and a burglary. In one of these cases, clothing was set fire to in the bedroom. The bizarre and seemingly random acts of violence caused Jeanette to become afraid of staying in her home and with her daughter when Harvey wasn't there. No one was ever apprehended for these crimes. On June 22, 1970, the phone in the farmhouse belonging to the couple went unanswered. No one had picked up in days. The crews lived near to Jeanette's father, Leonard W. Delmer, his farm adjoining theirs. And so a stock agent called Leonard to check to see if Harvey still wanted trucks to pick up sheep, as he couldn't get through to either half of the couple. When Leonard arrived at the pair's house, he found bloodstains in the farmhouse, and their 18-month-old daughter upset in her crib. She looked thin, as if she'd lost a few pounds, and her parents were nowhere to be seen. Instead of immediately alerting emergency services, however, Leonard went back to his own home to phone the agent and tell him to cancel the trucks. He then took a neighbor with him, one who had alerted Leonard to the fact that no one had heard from his daughter and son-in-law for a while, before he returned to the house. The child was handed over to a neighbor to be cared for, and the authorities were called. Jeanette and Harvey had last been seen on the 17th of June. The couple's milk, bread, and paper deliveries hadn't been collected from their letterbox, 
and it was found that their daughter likely hadn't eaten in five days. It was believed she hadn't had anything to drink in at most 48 hours. Oddly, a witness who came forward, another neighbor, claimed that a woman he didn't recognize was on the property on the 19th. He was very familiar with the cruise and was confident it wasn't Jeanette, who had long, dark hair. The woman he had seen had fair hair. Months later, on August 16th, Jeanette's body was found. It was wrapped in a duvet and bound with copper wire and had been located in the Wicato River. Harvey's body was found a month later on September 16th, further upriver. It appeared to have been caught on some reeds. A car axle was found with the body as if the killer had attempted to weigh it down, but only one investigator claimed that it was with the body, whilst others could not verify this. It could have simply been underneath the body in the water. Many theories arose in later years, which included the notion that this clue was false, and the axle wasn't even attached to the body at all. Both Jeanette and Harvey had been shot to death with a 22 caliber weapon. Jeanette also had broken facial bones from being struck with a blunt object. On the couple's Wikipedia page, it's mentioned that Jeanette was sexually assaulted, but many other reports do not include this information. 64 registered 22 caliber guns from locals and neighbors were collected and test fired. A forensic report on August 19, 1970, stated that of those tested, neither the rifle of a man named Arthur Allen Thomas, nor the rifle of local family named the Ayer family could be ruled out, but insufficient evidence pointed to either. The axle found with the body of Harvey was connected to Arthur Allen Thomas, a neighboring farmer. It was believed to have come from a trailer which had sold in 1959 to Arthur's father, Alan Thomas, and had resided on his farm, which Arthur was now running. Two back axles for the trailer were found in one of the tips on the property. Police also matched the copper wire which bound the bodies to some which was found on Arthur's farm. Whilst much of the evidence was circumstantial, police continued to pursue Arthur as their main suspect. In June of 1970, when Jeanette's sister Heather arrived from the United States to care for their daughter, she pointed the finger at Arthur, whose name had been raised earlier in the investigation by someone who claimed Jeanette had been pestered by a local boy prior to 1961. Upon being asked, Arthur told authorities that while he had liked Jeanette when they were younger and that he had chased after her romantically, she did not seem to reciprocate these feelings and never showed any interest, and so he moved on. He'd been married to his wife for three years and claimed that he hadn't seen either Harvey or Jeanette in eight or nine months. Prior to Jeanette getting married, Arthur had encountered her mother, who encouraged him to look her up. The pair exchanged the occasional letter while she was away overseas. When she returned, Arthur bought her a brush and comb as a Christmas gift in 1962, but she told him she had a boyfriend, and Arthur never pursued Jeanette any further. Upon reviewing crime scene photos, authorities determined that the shots were possibly fired through the windows in the kitchen, which looked onto the lounge through a doorway. The windows were open that night, 
and it was theorized that Harvey was shot first in his armchair due to the brain tissue found on the chair. The killer then went into the house and encountered Jeanette, who was struck before being shot. She had a contact wound, implying the gun had been pressed up against her skin. Armed with this new information, another search of the garden was conducted in October 1970 and turned up a spent cartridge case, half buried in the ground. The weapon carried marks which showed it had been ejected from Arthur's rifle, and in November 1970, he was arrested and charged with the double homicide. Although his wife and cousin gave him strong alibis for the 17th of June, Arthur was put on trial. The prosecution suggested that it was his wife who was seen by the witness on the crew property on the 19th, while the witness disputed this as he would have recognized her. They claimed that the motive behind the killing was that Arthur was obsessed with Jeanette, but almost every scrap of evidence that the prosecution had was circumstantial at best. Jeanette's father, Leonard, reportedly backed up the claims that Arthur was infatuated with his daughter, and in 1971, Arthur Allen Thomas was found guilty. A later appeal overturned this conviction, but he was tried and convicted again in 1973. Arthur's supporters began a campaign to bring attention to the miscarriage of justice which had occurred. Dr. Jim Sprott, an expert forensic scientist, was consulted, and he found that the cartridge of Arthur's that was found in the crew garden had been planted. It was shown to be from a batch that couldn't have contained the bullets that had been found in the victim's bodies. In 1979, Arthur was released from prison and was paid almost a million dollars for his time spent in jail and the loss of the use of his farm. The Royal Commission of Inquiry was ordered to review the case. They reported in November of 1980 that the bullet had been planted in the garden, having been created by the police when they had impounded his gun and ammunition. The report stated its belief that D.I. Bruce Hutton and D.S. Lemrick Johnston were responsible for the misconduct, but charges were never laid against the two. Among other things, the report acknowledged the planted evidence, but not that the police had been on the wrong track. It also ruled out Leonard Delmer as the killer, although he was the police's initial suspect. There are several main theories surrounding the murders of Harvey and Jeanette. The first is that a murder-suicide took place. Some believe that since Jeanette was physically struck in the face, Harvey was responsible, and either in self-defense or because she had perhaps snapped, Jeanette shot her husband. She then possibly had her father help her move and dispose of the body, but in the days following, Jeanette shot herself either due to guilt or because she knew she would get caught. Leonard then found her body and disposed of it as well. However, many believe Leonard and Leonard alone is responsible for the double homicide. In 1962, Leonard had been fined 10,000 pounds for tax evasion, and to meet the liability, he had to sell half of his share of the farm to his wife. At the time of Jeanette's death in 1970, she was about to receive that share, which had been left to her by her mother. Jeanette's sister, Heather, had been written out of her mother's will when she decided to marry a divorced American man. Leonard went on to raise suspicion during the investigation by the fact that he was slow to raise the alarm on his missing child and her husband. 
a scratch found on his neck, and that while he shadowed the authorities in their search for the missing couple, he didn't actively join in. He also made a comment that they would likely be in the water, which is where the pair were ultimately located. Leonard denied being involved. Reportedly, police were told that Leonard also had an unregistered 22 caliber gun, but it appears if this gun existed, it was never recovered. However, it was found that financially, Leonard would not have gained anything. Although he would receive the couple's share in the farm, it would ultimately go to his granddaughter when she turned 21. It's also been speculated that the woman seen on the farm on the 19th was Leonard's new girlfriend. Many online sleuths believe that a man named Mickey Iyer was responsible for the killings. Mickey was a man with a disability which prevented him from speaking, and according to his mother, didn't go out at night. This, however, was disputed by many witnesses who said they had seen him out and about at night with a gun. Earlier in this episode, we spoke of how a 22 caliber rifle, which belonged to the Aya family, could not be ruled out as being the murder weapon. Reportedly, Harvey had fought with Mickey Aya over work that he had done on the crew farm, and witnesses said that, in a rage, he'd thrown Mickey off his farm. This could possibly be a motive for Mickey Aya. However, Mickey was never investigated or deemed as a person of interest. An official police review in 2014 said that available evidence was insufficient for a new prosecution. As far as the investigation is concerned, Leonard has been cleared as a suspect, but the murder of Harvey and Jeanette continues to go unsolved. And there you have the facts. Three double murder cases that are still unsolved. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations. And remember to like the video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.